Good evening. Thank you all for coming uh, to the annual Dudleyan Lecture. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to at least be able to introduce the introducer tonight, to introduce the lecture uh, itself. Um, but first, let me just say a word about the, uh, the Dudleyan Lectures, which may be of at least historical interest for some of you, because, in fact, they are a rather special lectureship. Um, as uh, Perry Miller, the great historian uh, here at Harvard, said in 1953 when he gave the Dudleyan Lecture, a history of the Dudleyan Lectures is, in fact, an epitome of the modern intellect, at least as that intellect impinged upon Harvard. Uh, Harvard's, uh, it's Harvard's, of course, oldest endowed lectureship, established in 1750 by the bequest of Paul Dudley, 1675 to 1751, and a graduate of the Harvard class of 1690. Uh, and so a year before his death, he made this bequest. Um, uh, he, uh, Dudley himself, we don't have a lot of records of in his, in his Harvard time, except that there is uh, a passage in a book of biographical sketches of graduates of Harvard University by Sibley, which says that uh, he appears to have been a normal undergraduate with no unusual fines and only one large bill for broken glass. Uh, so uh, Mr. Justice Dudley, as he later became, uh, served as Attorney General and Chief Justice of Massachusetts, so he went on to a distinguished career, however much glass he broke in late carousing. Um, now, in records relating to the Dudleyan Lecture at Harvard University, uh, President Josiah Quincy um, notes that Judge Dudley uh, founded the lecture by giving the, the very large sum of 133 pounds, six shillings, and eight pence in like money. That has grown under the careful management of the Harvard Endowment somewhat so that we are able to bring distinguished figures such as our speaker tonight here uh, and not be embarrassed uh, to do so. Um, he also uh, went on to say uh, that, of course, the yearly income should be devoted to this uh, and to, namely, to an anniversary uh, a sermon or lecture to be held or preached at the said college once every year successively by such persons as the trustees of the legacy shall choose and appoint. That trusteeship now having passed uh, to the school here, uh, there is no longer uh, there is no longer a separate uh, board of trustees. Uh, under the four rubrics uh, which Mr. Justice Dudley designated for the lectures, uh, there's to be a cycle over four years of, uh, of four lectures. The first on natural religion, which uh, is the category in which our lecture tonight falls, uh, is, as an Islamic specialist myself, it's very nice to know that uh, Islam is, uh, is considered to be natural religion. That may mean that others are unnatural, I'm not sure, but in any case, it's, uh, uh, it is the rubric under which this year's lecture falls. Uh, the second on revealed religion, the third on the Romish church, and I'll come back in just a moment to that, and the fourth, the fourth on Presbyterian or congregational ordination which is now known as the, uh, now known as the validity of non-episcopal ordination. And that one is, uh, is, is perhaps puzzling to some of you, but, uh, the long and short of it is that you have to remember at the time, uh, in which these lectures, uh, uh were in fact, uh, uh, put together, 
uh, for the first time. This was, of course, before the revolution uh, and in a time when, as again Perry Miller uh, interprets uh, the rubric, uh, New England had to reconcile itself to being a self-confessed community of dissenters, its way of life protected against the Church of England only by the Toleration Act of 1689. Hence, Judge Dudley wanted the fourth lecture to defend the validity of congregational or Presbyterian, that is, non-Episcopal, non-Anglican ordination, so that students should be immunized against the doctrine of apostolic succession. Uh, so... Um, that by way of explanation of the lecture that we'll have in, in, uh, in, in four years' time, in three years' time now. Um, in any case, uh, Judge Dudley, uh, in his will, uh, said that in testimony of my, um, that the, that the, um, that the, uh, uh, the lectures were to be given in testimony of my humble desire that God would be graciously pleased to accept this poor thank offering from his unworthy servant for his many and great mercies to me in my education at the college and my sincere prayer and desire for the favor of God to that society in all ages to come. His will ends with this note, postscript, let him that preaches the last lecture before mentioned be a sound, grave, experienced divine and at least 40 years of age. That's for the fourth lecture. We don't have to hew to that today. You'll be glad to know, uh, <laughs> Professor Nasser. Um, and let those that preach the several lectures aforesaid have their stipend or pay given them as soon as may be. And we do try to hew to that very closely. Uh, Finally, I'll make mention of the meeting of the Board of Trustees of the university here. Actually, the trustees at that time still of the Dudleyan uh, lectures. Um, we have a formed group of trustees here under the auspices now of the Divinity School uh, in 1911, uh, I think still under that of the college. At this meeting, the president informed the trustees that the corporation had desired him to use his influence with them to omit the third Dudleyan lecture on the idolatry of the Romish church, their damnable heresies and other crying wickednesses. Uh, that was all quotes, as you may imagine. And to provide the other three lectures in rotation, it was therefore voted that the trustees concur concurred in this arrangement. So that's why we have lost the... Uh, uh, the, the aforesaid uh, lecture. In any case, it's a great pleasure in a long train of even recently very distinguished uh, uh, speakers uh, to welcome such a distinguished person tonight. Uh, and I would like to ask uh, Professor Larry Sullivan, the director of our Center for the Study of World Religions, uh, and a scholar who knows uh, certainly Professor Nasser's work uh, very, very well, uh, to please do the honors uh, of introducing him tonight. Larry? Well, thank you very much, Dean Graham. It's a great honor uh, to introduce our esteemed colleague and a good friend, Professor Sayed Hossein Nasser. Professor Nasser is one of the world's leading experts on Islamic science and spirituality and is uh, currently University Professor of Islamic Studies at George Washington University. Professor Nasser is the author of numerous books, including Man and Nature, The Spiritual Crisis of Modern Man, Religion and the Order of Nature, and Knowledge of the Sacred. Uh, some of these volumes we'll have available. The bookstores made them available in a reception to which you're all invited in the Brown Room at the end of this hall, the far end of the building, uh, after the presentation and some questions and answers. I, uh, it would, I would not do justice in the time allowed for the lecture to describe the rich and fascinating career of Professor Nasser, 
But I would like uh, for a moment to sketch some of the salient uh, features of that uh, fascinating uh, trajectory for your own benefit and also to set the context of his lecture this, uh, this evening. He's currently a university professor at George Washington University and certainly, without exaggeration, one of the most important and foremost scholars of our time uh, in specializing in particular in Islamic, religious, and comparative studies. He's the author of some 50 books and 500 articles, which are translated into the major Islamic, European, and Asian languages. And he is well known and esteemed as an intellectual figure in the West and throughout the Islamic world. Professor Nasser has trained generations of students over the years since 1958, when he was a professor at Tehran University, and then in America since the Iranian Revolution of 1979, specifically at Temple University in Philadelphia from 1979 to 84, and at George Washington since 1984 uh, to the present day. He speaks and writes with great authority on a wide variety of subjects ranging from philosophy to religion to spirituality, to music, law, art, and architecture, to science and literature, and to the civilizational dialogue between cultures and as well as among cultures and the natural environment. Professor Nasser was born in 1933 in Tehran into a family of distinguished scholars and physicians. His father, as I believe his father before that, was a physician to the Iranian royal family. And as a young boy, Professor Nasser attended one of the schools near his home and continued his education, I would say, also at home on the direction of his father and the circle of philosophical of philosophers and theologians that he participated in. Nasser arrived in America at the young age of 12, and this marked the beginning of a new period in his life, which was quite different from that had unfolded up to that time. He attended the Petty School in Highestown, New Jersey, and in 1950 he graduated as the valedictorian of his class. He chose then to go to MIT, just a couple of miles downstream. He was offered a scholarship there and was in fact the first Iranian student to be admitted as an undergraduate at MIT. He began his studies in, uh, at MIT in the physics department, and then uh, after his first year of study, he under, underwent what he describes as a kind of crisis provoked by an awareness of the um, oppressive atmosphere of an overbearingly scientific view and an implicit positivism contained within that. According to Professor Nasser, it was the discovery of traditional metaphysics and philosophia perennis which settled the crisis that he had experienced and gave him the possibility of gaining an intellectual certitude which has never left him since that time. From that time onward, he was certain that there was such a thing as the truth, and it could be attained through knowledge by means of the intellect, guided and illuminated by divine revelation. Upon his graduation from MIT, Professor Nasser enrolled himself in a graduate program in geology and geophysics at Harvard University. And after obtaining his master's degree in geology and geophysics in 1956, he went on to pursue the Ph.D. in the history of science at Harvard. He had wanted to study other types of science of nature apart from the modern West and also want to understand why 
modern science has developed in the fashion that it has. It was here at Harvard that he resumed his study of classical Arabic, which he had since uh, set aside since coming to America. During his Harvard years, Nasser also traveled widely to Europe, especially to France, Switzerland, Britain, Italy, and Spain, and thus widened his intellectual horizons and established important intellectual contacts. During these travels to Europe, Nasser met the foremost traditionalist writers and exponents of Philosophia Perennis, Fridjof Schwann, and Titus Burkhardt. These made a tremendous impact and made a decisive contribution to his own intellectual formation and to his spiritual life as well. He traveled to Morocco, which had great spiritual significance for him, and embraced Sufism in the form taught and practiced by the Sufi saint of the Maghrib, Sheikh Ahmad al-Alawi. Thus, the years at Harvard witnessed a crystallization of major intellectual and spiritual elements in Nasser's mature worldview, elements which have since dominated and determined the course and pattern of his scholarship and academic career. He graduated with a Ph.D. from Harvard at the age of 25 and uh, turned down an offer to become assistant professor at MIT in order to return to teach in Iran. He was offered an associate professorship of philosophy and history of science at the Faculty of Letters in Tehran University. Five years later, at the age of 30, he became the youngest person to become a full professor at that university. Furthermore, from 1968 to 72, he was made dean of the faculty and for a while academic vice chancellor of Tehran University. And through these positions, he introduced many important changes, all of which were aimed at strengthening programs in the humanities and particularly in philosophy. In 1972, he was appointed president of Aryamir University by the Shah of Iran. Aryamir University was then the leading scientific and technical university in Iran, and the Shah, as the patron, charged Professor Nasser to develop the university on the model of MIT, but with firm and self-conscious roots in Iranian culture. In 1973, the Queen of Iran appointed Professor Nasser to establish a center for the study and propagation of philosophy under her patronage. Hence, the Imperial Iranian Academy of Philosophy was established and soon became a leading and important vital center of philosophical activity in the Islamic world, housing the best library of philosophy in Iran and attracting some of the most distinguished scholars in the field, both from East and West. You can think of Henri Corbin and uh, Toshiko Zutsu, for example, who worked there. Uh, being director of the Center for the Study of World Religions, among the many different lectures that Professor Nasser has given internationally, I need to call attention to the fact that he was the first visiting professor at the Center for the Study of World Religions and delivered the first lecture series there in 1962. And the book that resulted from those lectures, Three Muslim Sages, I learned uh, just a moment ago, is not only still in print in English, but has been recently published in Bulgarian. So this work has had... Uh, uh, a lifespan that we, we would all wish for our work. <laughs> in 1979, at the time of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Professor Nasser moved with his family to the United States, where he would rebuild his life and secure a university position to support himself and his family. He began writing again, and he had been invited already before his 
turned to the United States to deliver the prestigious Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh, and he then took up that honor. He was the first non-Westerner to be invited to deliver what is arguably the most famous lecture series in the field of natural theology and philosophy of religion in the West. Currently, among the many significant activities that Professor Nasser is leading, both in the Washington, D.C. area and nationally as well as internationally, he is involved in the production of a major documentary television series on Islam and the West, which deals with some of the most important and profound aspects of the encounter between the Islamic and Western civilizations. So it's a great pleasure that he said yes to the invitation to deliver the Dudleyan Lecture this evening. It will be on the beginnings of consciousness. Please welcome Professor Syed Hossein Nasser. Graham, Professor Sullivan, dear friends. I think the last time I was in this hall, I was arguing with Hans Kung about Islamic-Christian dialogue. Today's discussion will be somewhat less contentious, but not philosophically speaking. I'm glad I did not choose to speak about the question of Islam because I believe Islam is also a revealed religion. It would not have fit into that category of natural religion. But actually, the subject I was I chose after being invited to del- deliver this oldest of all former lectures at Harvard University was a theme which has been very much on my mind the last few years, and I entitled it, In the Beginning Was Consciousness. Uh, This may sound as a somewhat strange title, but I chose this on purpose. I believe that we are at the present moment at the cusp of the curve of life, what the French call cours de vie, of the paradigm which has dominated Western civilization since the Renaissance. And this transformation that is coming about has at its heart this question, as we shall find out very soon. It was about 50 years ago, right on this campus, when with Thomas Kuhn, who died recently, unfortunately, before finishing his work, a major American philosopher of science, as many of you know, and a few others were struggling and grappling and wrestling with this question of paradigm shifts He and I did not exactly agree on what it was, but we both felt that uh, there's a major change that is afoot. And, of course, these things do not come so quickly, as he himself pointed out. It is very important writings. It takes some time. But I do believe that it is a time that the most important questions that face present-day civilization will involve not only solutions within the present parameters within which we think, but those parameters themselves, that is, the paradigm within which human beings carry out their intellectual and also practical activities. So in the beginning was consciousness. And the original title of my talk was not only in the beginning was consciousness, but in the beginning is consciousness. Because this in the beginning is not simply a past time. It involves a principial reality. Let me begin by quoting from several of the sacred scriptures of the world. In the Rigveda, the oldest of all Hindu sacred scriptures, we read, one alone is the dawn beaming over all this. 
it is the one that severally becomes all this. The one who is Sit, Sat, Shit, and Ananda, that is both all three being blessed, uh, um, state of being blessed or in state of bliss and of course consciousness, Chit. Same in the Tao Te Ching, the pr- primary text of Taoism and also its influence upon Neo-Confucianism, of course, we all know. The nameless Tao is the beginning of heaven and earth. The name Tao is the mother of 10,000 things. So the, at the origin you have the Tao, which in fact is consciousness. I'll come to consciousness in a moment. And of course, we all know the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In chapter 6 of the book of John, Christ said that my word is spirit and life. So this word is not simply word in the ordinary sense, but it's spirit and life. And finally in the Quran, in chapter 36, the Surah Yasin, but his command, when he intendeth a thing, is only that he saith unto it be, and it is. And so the origin is very explicitly said in the Quran to be the command of God, which is itself as the word Amr, A-M-R, is considered to be on the level of what we call Logos in the Logos theories of theology and philosophy, Logos doctrines. Now, when we turn to traditional philosophies all over the world, uh, we see this almost remarkable unanimity. We think of the zero, of the lambda, of Pythagoras. We think of the Toagathon, of Plato, Aristotle's divine intellect. We think of the essay of St. Thomas Aquinas, with the capital E, of course, which is also consciousness, which knows the divine being, and its correspondence, of course, in Islamic philosophy, to which St. Thomas Aquinas was so uh, close. And outside of the circle of Western Asia and Europe, in the Abrahamic world, of course, we think of Atman in Advaita Vedanta in Hindu metaphysics, which is pure consciousness, the self, which is the origin of all things, and also the role of the Tao in the new Confucian philosophies of the 12th, 13th century. You can go on and on and on. So where is the exception? The exception really is to be found in the world in which we happen to be living. Before modern times, there were philosophies for which consciousness was not primary and in the beginning. We see it in the Greco-Roman antiquity, we see it in certain schools of Hinduism, but they're really minor. They do not dominate over the vision, over the world view, the Weltanschauung of the civilizations in questions. Uh, <coughs> and in all of these civilizations, there was a mentality in which, in the beginning, did not imply only a beginning in time somewhere back there. We shall come back to that, it's very important. It's very significant that in English we say in the beginning was the word. In the Vulgate it says in principia erat verbum. So in the principia, in principle was the word. And not only temporally. And these other civilizations were all very, very fully aware of this. Now, uh, the reality of the primacy of consciousness begins in modern times at the end of the Renaissance, especially with the scientific revolution. Before I turn to that, uh, it's very important, if we're going to be philosophically serious, of course, to define what we mean by consciousness. Uh, those people who believe that philosophy should only deal with what is operationally definable, that is making philosophy a handmade 
of physics and engineering, of course, there's certain concepts with which they do not deal, namely what's behind me, the word veritas, which should be taken off if not put in the philosophy department because that cannot be defined from the point of operational uh, methods that is used in analytical philosophy. But there are universal concepts of philosophy as to that which I'm appealing and the traditional understanding of philosophy, which also is very rigorous, but not necessarily operational, because it's impossible to define consciousness operationally. Every time you try to define consciousness, consciousness operationally, you have to make use of consciousness in order to do so. It's like the famous uh, saying of Pascal that you cannot define to be, because every time you use a sentence, you say, say, that is, it is. And you're already using the verb to be in order to define it. So, of course, then you have a circular argument, and that's not acceptable. Now, it's a paradox that something as obvious as consciousness cannot be externally and operationally defined. That is true. But we all know what consciousness is, even if through some kind of solipsism or at least a kind of inward uh, way of uh, deluding ourselves of being the only reality we might deny the world out there, or through some kind of sophism try to deny the reality of consciousness, we do so in both cases through the use of consciousness. Consciousness is the most primary reality with which we judge every other reality. Uh, consciousness for these traditional civilizations, for religions and philosophies, was not a state it was a substance. It was not a process. It was something that was, like being itself, which was at once luminous and numinous, at once knowing and knowing that it's knowing, knowledgeable of its own knowledge, at once the source of all sentience, of all experience, and beyond experience by having knowledge that is experiencing something. That is why even the most skeptical philosophers had a great deal of trouble negating it, even those who were skeptics from a religious point of view. We have the supreme example of that, of skepticism, of course, in the famous Cartesian method. Descartes was, I think, wrong in many ways, but he was right in one thing, and that is that if you doubt everything, you cannot doubt the fact that you're doubting. And it's from this comes, of course, the famous cogito ergo sum, the cogito of Descartes, that is, I think, therefore I am. The therefore is unfortunate because it's, the therefore has other consequences. Uh, the car should have said, I think, therefore God is, but he forgot that. But nevertheless, the fact that if you negate everything, if you doubt everything, you cannot doubt the instrument with which you're doubting. And if you think this is, begins with Descartes, the great Persian philosopher Ibn Sina, Avicenna, over a thousand years ago, talks about the hanging man, al-insan al-mu'allaqa. That is a man hung in the middle of space. So his feet do not touch anything. His hands do not touch anything. He doesn't know where he is. He can doubt the existence of the earth. He can doubt the existence of the air. There's nothing that he can not doubt. The only thing he cannot doubt is himself that is, that is doubting other things. So in fact, Descartes' argument is not the beginning of it in the history of philosophy. There have been other instances. Anyway, even the skeptical philosophers in days of old did not deny the primacy of consciousness. The question was, what mode of consciousness, what kind of consciousness? But I don't want to spend my whole lecture just defining consciousness. I want to get back to the significance of, of it metaphysically and its loss for our life, religiously and otherwise. Now, as I said, I believe that it was really at the beginning of the scientific revolution that in the beginning was consciousness was seriously challenged. At first, it was not challenged uh, 
outwardly by those who were the great masters who created modern science, especially, certainly not by Johannes Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton, both of whom had even a mystical aspect of religion and they believed not only in God, but they believed in a kind of mystical vision of God, each in his own way. And even Galileo the Maverick, he could not even imagine denying that God created the world. That was not behind, uh, in the point of discussion. But once having set up this worldview in which God becomes only the creator of the world, uh, two things set in. First of all, the levels of consciousness are all, in a sense, reduced to a single level. Uh, that is, the multi-leveled structure of the world of consciousness, which you had traditionally from divine consciousness to the consciousness of the angels, of the great intellects, of the great saints and sages, all the way to our consciousness of ordinary human beings, that was all reduced to a single level of reality. And people spoke of consciousness as being ordinary human consciousness. The second consequence, which is even more devastating from the point of, of our discussion here, was that it was accepted that God created the world, and of course God had consciousness, because he knew he's the knower, and he had all the other attributes which we attribute to consciousness. But after that, it had nothing to do with it. There's the deistic position, which came to the fore for a long time, and gradually replaced the theistic position after Paley and others' natural theism sort of went out of the window in England, and many of these lectures on natural theology had trouble in the late 19th century, early 20th century, on this very issue, natural theology was considered to be, in fact, an oxymoron, uh, uh, not having any uh, real significance and meaning. So that theism was a very temporary matter. What lasted much longer was a deism, within which it still functioned to a large extent. During the last 40 years, we keep talking about the Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory. There have been lectures even held on how that is related to perhaps to the fiat lux of the book of Genesis or of the Quran and the Abrahamic world of seeing a creator God create the world suddenly, and this is very theological. But the consciousness of God is irrelevant to this, uh, because once the Big Bang has taken place and the universe is there, we are not interested in any consciousness in the universe. There's no such thing. It is always energies and material particles. So take, consciousness is taken out of God's creation. And that is what takes place in the 17th century. And it becomes an epiphenomenon in the human state, to which I shall turn in a moment. It is with the help of this uh, mechanical view of the universe, complemented by the Darwinian theory of evolution in the 19th century, that essentially the category of consciousness becomes irrelevant in human life. It becomes irrelevant even if we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. For everyday life, it's, in a sense, it's so what? As far as the sciences, as our attitude towards things, our situation in the world is concerned, if you accept that scientific point of view. And it is this which led, this, finally, to the idea of always trying to explain by reduction. I mean, that's one of the most important characteristics of modern thought, explanation through analysis, but not through synthesis. That is, the whole is never greater than its parts, and uh, therefore we are always after ultimate particles. One of the physics students at MIT, they thought that within five years we'll discover all the ultimate particles of matter. I mean, he's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. 
50 years later, we're still looking for ultimate particles, and we'll be running, and then particles will be running, and we'll never catch up to them. Because of a metaphysical reason, it's not just a few billiard balls that just happen to be very small, and we just haven't found the little ones in the corner, and put them up together, and we create the universe. But we have this idea. As soon as we go to a doctor's office, that's what's at play. We are reduced to what the MRI says on the board. And the rest of us doesn't count, and whatever is not on the MRI. And that is reduced to the biology, biology to the uh, chemistry, chemistry to the physics, and so forth and so on. This reductionism, which then takes hold, and in which, in fact, if you even talk about consciousness, it is irrelevant as far as, as I said, this even science of the body is concerned. It's only now that Harvard University has started a spirituality and healing program at the medical school six, seven years ago because we only know too well how our consciousness does affect our body in remarkable ways. But it's not supposed to. We cannot explain it according to the model, the prevalent model that is around. And we finally end up at the tail end where we enter into the realm of quantum mechanics in which, again, paradoxically, we have to accept consciousness because we cannot never know anything without observing it. And uh, the question that psychons, that some of you may have heard of, and physicists have spoken of, of course, most physicists have not accepted, that we have uh, psychic particles, that is, consciousness particles, along with neurons and so forth, and um, neutrons and all the other things that are around. Uh, that uh, is itself is a way of trying to come to terms. So we end up with this paradox that we cannot really understand the universe quantum mechanically without a consciousness to observe the events and what makes the... Uh, vector collapse, the, the state vector collapse, which is a very important philosophical issue, whether it's us as the observer or God as the creator, that a lot of debate has taken place. But anyway, the element of consciousness is, has grabbed us by the neck and won't let us go. And then the remarkable thing is that when we come to the end of this period of the gradual dissolution of this Renaissance 17th century paradigm, the other extreme enters into Western society. For example, Hinduism is at the antipode of this 17th century view in which everything has consciousness. The stone's being is a form of stony consciousness, if I can use such an English term. But the, in Hinduism, that would be perfectly uh, understandable. In our terms, it's not understandable. And up the line, all the way to human beings, and this, uh, it's not parapsychism. Is, uh, that's quite something else. But you also, ha- so you have the Hindu doctrines, other ideas coming from the East, and then all you have the, all the occultism and the pseudo uh, sort of religious elements which talk about panpsychism and all kinds of things coming into that very world which had negated the reality of consciousness from everything in the world except the human beings. And perhaps God, if you believe in God, if you, whether you believe or not, it was irrelevant to our situation in the world as far as the world around us was concerned. Now, uh, this banishing of consciousness from the cosmos, uh, denying that in the beginning was consciousness and also in principle is consciousness at the present moment, has had very deep consequences, I believe, for the human state, for what we are suffering through, what we're going through today. And I thought that it would be important to say a few words about it. Let's not forget that we don't want to accept this, but the scientific theory is that consciousness is an epiphenomenon in the cosmos, possessed by very irrelevant people on a very irrelevant planet 
in a very irrelevant galaxy who happen to ha- know all of these things to say that they're all irrelevant. But that part nobody talks about. Uh, that second part nobody talks about. So, and so it's not really considered to be a major reality in the cosmos. In fact, it's not even a minor reality. It's practically not there. We have a cosmos which is not only dead, but without consciousness. And uh, nevertheless, consciousness studies it uh, in, a, in a particular mode of consciousness that we have. Now, <coughs> what are the consequences of this? First and foremost was the withering of religious life by reducing levels of consciousness to, to, the, most, to the lowest and the most ordinary. I believe one of the uh, reasons for the withering of mysticism within Western Christianity, not only Protestant Christianity, but to some extent Catholic Christianity, was this loss of the vision of levels of consciousness. In medieval times, or even in the Renaissance, Teresa Avila had visions of Christ and so forth and so on. That was meant something within that universe. Whereas when Swedenborg was having his visions in Stockholm with the Swedenborgian church down the street, that didn't mean anything in the scientific culture of that time. And so the position of Swedenborg's vision in the Christianity of the 18th century is very different from that of St. Therese of Avila in the Catholicism of the 16th century. So it had a very important effect upon religious life. And also it had a very important effect, of course, upon cutting off man's consciousness from the higher levels of consciousness, which did not go away by our denying them. That's taking away the ladder. If you say there's no third floor in this building, you'll not try to go up to the third floor. Uh, And therefore, the quest for transcendence, for the empowering, you might say, and illuminating of our consciousness, which was always the goal of all traditional civilizations, became irrelevant. Our desire for perfection became horizontalized gaining more and more information, but not necessarily luminous knowledge, which means the transformation of one's consciousness. <coughs> Another consequence of this was the realities of religion became lost. They became either meaningless or reduced to metaphors or simply historical accidents and so forth and so on. It's not accidental that all of these philosophies of religion that, that developed in the 19th century onward are either based on uh, historical reductionism of reducing historical realities to what can be understood materially and denying everything which cannot be proven in a laboratory at Oxford or Harvard. Since we cannot walk on water, Christ could not have walked on water, certainly. And therefore, if people say he did walk on water, either they were blind or they were not, had been as well educated as us, or he has, has some other meaning. So the whole question of the language of religion, the way it spoke to humanity from the greatest miracles of founders of religion to everyday religious life, of course, became unreal. The turning away in droves of people from religion in the 18th and 19th century is not at all accidental. That is, religion addresses the humanity in a universe which is full of consciousness. Not only is the divine reality consciousness, you have hierarchy of angels, of various conscious beings, now reduced to UFOs, I shall come to them in just a moment, uh, or in, in the non-Abrahamic world, there's a Bud- in the Buddhist uh, Tibetan tradition of all of the hierarchy of the various 
Buddhas and Avakalateshvaras and all kinds of uh, beings, uh, uh, intermediate worlds, the world of Hinduism, all the gods and goddesses, and you can just go down the line. There's no religion in which the universe is not filled with consciousness. Even these most rationalistic Muslims who try to interpret uh, Islam uh, in a very dry and rationalistic manner, they cannot de- deny the reality of the Archangel Gabriel without which there would not have been a Quranic revelation. They cannot de- deny the verse of the Quran in which this is written. But this became a very, very important issue that in a sense uh, reduced the understanding of the language of religion and caused this panic among many people, this fervor to try to reinterpret it, all the way from atheists to theists, from Karl Marx to Schleiermacher in the 19th century and in the 20th century, all different kinds of interpretations of something which people did not have to explain in the old days because it was part of their general worldview. It was part of the universe. God could speak to the trees as well as to us. Uh, and uh, angelic beings could manifest themselves, they could bring knowledge, knowledge, consciousness was unlimited, of course, to the human order. And it even affected the relationship between the human being and God. And it's true that uh, these events did not destroy the reality of God in the minds of many people. But it did affect that relationship. Even the question of prayer and the efficacy of prayer, how does God answer prayer? Of course, in a mechanistic universe in which consciousness is put at the beginning in time, this is a very difficult thing to explain rationally. What are the agencies through which the divine can come into our lives? And so it had to be done through emotions. Most uh, theologians in the West try to explain this emotionally without really confronting intellectually, in the most rigorous sense, the challenge of the mechanistic universe. They try to circumvent it. And of course, Christian theology suffered a great deal, suffered a great deal in the battles that were fought because he had to accept more and more a scientific point of view. Even today we have the, all this movement for, the, for better relation between religion and science, started by the Templeton Foundation. I was their advisor for several years, but I don't have time and I've withdrawn myself. But it's always the theologians have to give. The science have never to give anything. Uh, it's always the theology that is retreating step by step and therefore left, of course, a deep imprint upon theological concerns, one of which we now pay for a great deal, and that is the lack of attention to nature as a theological category, which left Christianity in the 17th century and has only come back in our own time. So I'm going to come back in a moment. Another important consequence of that is really the loss of the meaning of being human. What does it mean to be human? don't think this is uh, just an academic matter. Of course, we would say someone who has an immortal soul for a Christian. Again, we come back, we have consciousness of only being human, uh, of having human soul, and God having uh, being the spirit of the capital S, and that's it. What about being human towards the rest of God's creation? What does that entail? What does that mean? Leaving out the animal and plant realms. And then also within the human being, what is the relationship between our being human as an immortal soul and the rest of our body? The indifference to the body as a source of wisdom, which came about, and a sudden rediscovery in the 1960s through sexuality and loud music and all kinds of things of trying to reassert the reality of the body was a reaction really to this, which goes back precisely to what happened with this loss of the sense of the presence of the of consciousness 
and throughout reality. More difficult than that was that not only was the sense of the sacredness of human life put into question, uh, because the word sacred doesn't mean anything in the context of modern science, it's just pure sentimentality, but uh, what happened was that uh, human beings lost their home. That is, we became homeless in the cosmos. Every traditional humanity felt at a position in the universe. And don't say how childish it was that you had this Ptolemaic system with the earth in the middle and uh, all of the heavens above, how a sense of pride that we were in the middle of things. It was not a sense of pride, it was also the lowest point of things. But at least Dante knew where he was. But for better or for worse, he knew where he was. And, and the Mesoamericans, um, Professor Sullivan studies in the Amazon, they feel they know where they are. We don't know where we are. I mean, we do not, we do not have a home in the cosmos. There's a very profound sense of alienation. And that is what is brought into the English language, the word alien, in the new sense. Not only has it brought psychological alienation, which is one of the maladies of the modern world, from which traditional societies suffered much less, much less. Alienation is one of our, like AIDS, is a really modern ailment. Not that no one was ever alienated before, but this strong sense of alienation, to a large extent, comes from the fact that if we think this through uh, and accept uh, this a reductionist worldview that came in the 17th century, cutting off consciousness from the world in which we live, we are very lonely here. We are alienated in this cosmos. The cosmos is not a hospitable place for us. And of course, if you sit down and calculate what are the probabilities of our being here, and it comes out to be extremely, extremely, extremely small, then that makes it even stranger. Uh, but we won't get into that, all those discussions. Uh, as you know, that uh, the possibility of one cell uh, being just crea created by accident, is, as they've said, is like a monkey banging. And at that time, there were typewriters. Now it's computers uh, 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 and producing Hamlet. It's about the same, producing one of the Shakespearean plays. Uh, but even if that happened, and we, usually, we try to put that in the corner of our mind, uh, we feel that we don't belong here if we take this seriously. That's why we don't take it seriously. Any person who walks in the street and smells a flower saw how beautiful, that person is not taking this point of view seriously, even if he's a professor teaching it at class. Because our human psyche, in order to remain sane, has to feel at home somewhat. And this has nothing to do with the mystical alienation, which, which a lot of these people writing on the environment today have confused the two. Uh, mystical alienation from the world is to realize that our home is ultimately paradise, is the angelic world. And we are not, we are on a journey here. This is not a permanent home. We are on a journey here. That's very different from feeling that, in fact, this has nothing to do with us. We don't belong here. It's a very different sense. And the two should not be confused. It's as if you come to Harvard University for four years as a freshman until senior. Now, this is not your permanent home. But nevertheless, you feel you belong to Harvard. These years are spent here. They're creative and you try to take care of your dorm. To some extent, if you're a boy student, women student, much somewhat neater. But anyway, you're living in here for a few years. You don't want to live in a garbage can. Uh, whereas to the, that's not the way how modern man feels. The world around us, is, uh, from which we're alienated, also becomes worthless in a sense, and therefore a value only as far as our own immediate impulses and so-called needs which are really usually mostly pseudo-needs, are concerned with the catastrophe that it brings about with the world of nature. And now I want to turn to this point. 
uh, the consequences of the alienation from the world and this loss of vision of consciousness as being, in a sense, omnipresent throughout creation, most of all, of course, is in the relation that has been created between modern man and nature, modern men and women. I wish it were true that only men are ruined the environment, the women uh, save the environment, they should be made the head of every company in the United States immediately and solve the problem. But unfortunately, the issue is much more complicated than that. Uh, but uh, I'm using the word man here in, uh, in the older sense of the term, not male. But in the human being and the environment, this uh, issue, of course, is now very much in the center of our attention. I remember that right in this library, in the early 60s, I spent the summer when I was teaching here at, at Harvard doing research on the book that came out as Man and Nature, the Rockefeller Series Lectures, which I delivered the year after at the University of Chicago, which is still in print, like, like the three Muslim sages, which sort of foretold the environmental crisis. Uh, none of the theologians, either here, some of my friends, or in England, were at all interested in what I was saying. Is the theology of nature was a non-existing category. Nobody was interested in this. And uh, they said, what is this, all this you're talking about? And they were angry at me uh, for uh, even speaking about these matters. Uh, the fact that the environmental crisis has a religious, theological, spiritual basis. It's not just bad engineering, as some people think, as a deeper root. And I think that has everything to do with what we think of the world around us. I mean, what is this tree I'm looking at in the window? If it's just wood for my fireplace... If the fox is just skin to put around my wife's neck and this mountain, just iron from which to draw, ex extract and make cars, that's a very different attitude than if I look upon these things as sharing my own reality. Let me put it in a very common everyday sense. Like we do with our pets. I mean, none of us would accept to have a fried cat for dinner. Uh, God forbid. My, my cat is right now in the hospital. I've just paid a thousand dollars since yesterday just to get her uh, uh, operated. So I, I sympathize. I, I love animals. But we never think of it, those who are animal lovers, because that animal shares in our reality. We talk to our cat even, or a horse, or a dog, and so forth. We feel they have consciousness. If we had accepted the Cartesian view of these are mechanical beings, sort of uh, creatures, machines, uh, we did not share in our reality. We would do with them what we've been doing with the macro nature around us, decimating it, decimating the names of, in the name of human needs and cutting, sitting on a limb of a tree and cutting it without knowing that we're going to fall down and break our neck very soon. And the great tragedy is I now don't even want to talk about these issues anymore. The last two years has been put on the back burner as if it were a minor issue about, let's say, how to improve the saddle of horses in Texas. That would have been at the top of the list if I had been there, made, made the wrong state, in the wrong state, let's say Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, we don't think about it anymore. But it's, a, of course, a crucial, crucial matter, which I believe is a direct consequence of uh, <coughs> uh, our alienation from a world in which there is no participation in the same reality. Because no, even if you say, oh, my body is made of stardust, and I'm, I share this, the dust of the stars. This is all nice poetry, but it doesn't mean a darn thing. Because what consciousness do I have of my own dust, except a reality within my consciousness? And when I identify myself with a star, it has to be something that identifies with my consciousness. Otherwise, the word D-U-S-T, uh, what the heck does it mean? 
It has to be something for which had meaning within my consciousness, and that's what's lacking. Now, to get to a more philosophical issue, uh, when you negate that in the beginning was consciousness, and you end up with this uh, idea of consciousness being an island uh, within certain creatures known as human beings who occupy a certain planet called the Earth, how do we know? How can we know anything? The Cartesian bifurcation has never been solved its solution. Everything we say is really not the complete solution. How do I know that something is out there? If Because I cannot say that there are neurons in my brain reacting. So what? What, what? Neurons and consciousness are not the same thing. It's a very, very big jump. Very big jump. It's a, like the jump between uh, the board or canvas and the painting by Raphael on top of it. They're not the same thing. Uh, we just say this I mean, to please ourselves. But really, what, how is it, is it possible for us to know the world out there if there is no common category, nothing that unites the knower and the known? This enfeeblement of methodology, which was never a problem for traditional philosophies, nobody was really very much concerned with us because it was very easy to explain, has everything to do with the total and radical partition between what we call consciousness and matter. Whatever the word matter means, I don't even want to use it, but the material world, corporeal world. There's this uh, very, very deep, categorical, absolute division between consciousness and matter. And therefore, how can one know the other? Now, we don't claim that matter knows us. We don't claim the other way. Because uh, knowing is one of the attributes of consciousness. And since we do not attribute any uh, power of consciousness to matter, material things, we do not say that they know. I once asked a question of one of my physics professors, I was telling my dear friend doctor more about this the other day. Uh, this question, when I was at MIT, I said, look, we just studied integral calculus, and we learned that you can integrate uh, the trajectory of a particular object that you throw into the air uh, by uh, through mathematics to find out exactly what that uh, trajectory is and where that thing will land. Now, this object, this little pebble or whatever it is that you're throwing out, obviously does not know any calculus and cannot integrate the function. How does it know exactly where to go and what does it ever miss? Why does it always go to the same place? So all these are laws of nature, don't ask about these things, or in physics, but it really didn't answer the question. If you had the traditional understanding of nature, that's not so difficult. Uh, supreme consciousness, in a sense, impinges through various levels of reality upon the ether and the ether upon the elements and the elements upon what we see out there, uh, certain norms, certain orders, which then we observe. And so even the laws of nature, which we'll be able to observe, far from being simply subjective whims and fancies, which scientists would not accept either, they believe it to be objective, has a reason why it's objective, and it's understandable, it's coherent from that point of view. But of course, this is something that we can no longer rely upon uh, in the way that we think about knower and known. And this leads me to another very important point. Since we've become marginalized, since consciousness has become marginalized, since we categorically deny the possibility of consciousness outside of the human domain. We're at a loss what happens 
When something in the human domain goes outside of this room that we have determined for it and either seeks or claims to find consciousness elsewhere. This problem never existed before. The question of UFOs, aliens, abductions. Now look, uh, this, too easy to say these are all crazy people, throw them into this asylum, that's it. All civilizations have negated and rejected people who had a worldview other than the dominant worldview of that civilization. But they didn't do it in the name of science. We do it in the name of science. We have a very famous professor here at Harvard, John Mack, who studied hundreds of cases of this clinically, scientifically. And even if you do not accept that these people are telling the truth, this is related to something that is a kind of deep urge of connectedness with intelligence, with consciousness beyond our immediate human terrestrial sphere. And it's not accidental, it's not part and parcel of pop culture, of common culture. Children are brought up with it, movies on aliens and so forth, science fiction. What function does this fill? What is it doing? Why is there so many people interested in these things? They've taken the place, actually, of all accounts of non-human intelligence and consciousness in traditional civilizations. And somewhere it works of Tolkien and so forth and so the two meet together. That is, of fairy tales, of stories of angels, of various celestial beings. Every civilization had, was full of these and it percolated into books read for children, stories told by grandmothers to people uh, at the smallest age. And it satisfied a very, very deep yearning of the human soul for companionship, for companionship in the world in which we live. When you cut that off, when that is no longer relevant, that becomes a fairy tale. When we say an English fairy tale, that means something is a f- that is false. A myth means something unreal rather than real. Myth was the reality, now it's unreality. When we change all of these things, then we cannot act in a vacuum. In its place comes all of these things that you see, this phenomena of uh, first of all, science fiction itself, much of it dealing with uh, attempt to try to fill this is a pseudo-sacred, you might say, writing. And there are all these claims of visions, of films which sell millions and millions. Uh, why does a child want to see some strange extraterrestrial looking very strange, touching it and so forth? And why is that person good? Why is that alien good and so forth and so on? These are extremely profound issues which deal with the total psyche of a, of a society which has been banned from having contact or even thinking that it's possible of contact within a universe in which there are there's other f- form of not only life but of intelligence and of consciousness. Also, uh, this alienation has made a sham, really, of the metaphysical and philosophical basis of ethics. This is a very big claim that I'm making, and it's really subject for another day. Some other person should talk about this, but let me just say a word about it. In all periods of human history, ethics was related to a vision of reality, had a cosmic aspect. We think of the battle of Ahriman and Ahura, Mazdan, Zoroastrianism, we think of the treatise of St. Augustine on the good, we think of no Confucianism, you know, whatever world you're going to, uh, that's a kind of permanent condition of all serious ethics. That is, ethics was never only human ethics for human beings, it had a cosmic aspect. 
It had a cosmic aspect. There was a triangle the, for the Abrahamic world at least. You had God, or in Hinduism, Ishvara. You had the human being, and you had the world, the cosmos. And in the world of ethics, there was a correspondence. What we have done is that through this depleting of the cosmos in which we live, of consciousness, uh, made any ethical act towards the world of nature contrived. With vis-a-vis human beings, sorry, we say we are, let's say, Christians, we follow in Christian ethics, and my, I've been very respectful to my neighbor, and uh, thou shalt not kill, and so forth and so on. But why should not one cut a tree? Why should one not kill a particular animal, and so forth and so on? In the old days, in the Old and New Testament, there were explanations given for this. Animals also had souls and so forth. But that has been all gone. And any kind of environmental ethics, which is based on this atomistic or scientific, I don't call it scientific, scientific view of the world, is based on sentimentality. It is not based on reality, if we accept that as reality. It's based on sentimentality. It's like saying sacredness of human life. One breath is say sacredness of human life, with the next breath, we say we're nothing but DNA. What is sacred about DNA? Just some molecules banging against each other in certain configurations. If you reject the sacred, if you reject that the imprint upon the DNA is a theological concept of the Word of God being imprinted upon DNA, which is, this is a meaningless statement in modern biology, where does the sacredness come from? But in the human world, we can still do. But even the withering away of Christian ethics, which now we see before us after several hundred years, of Christian ethics surviving in a world in which its cosmological basis was gone, is withering away has to do a lot with this. And especially when it comes to environmental ethics, which if we do not uh, create in a serious way, we will not be able to live in the future. That's why these people, let's say, who are animal activists, people like that, they're outside of the mainstream. The mainstream cannot accept them. They're called uh, nutty people, crazy people, people who tie themselves to trees and so forth, and uh, go on top of trees, refuse to have, come down, and so it will not be cut down. These heroic acts performed by Greenpeace, going before big ships with the little boats and so forth and so on. This is not part of our mainstream, because we cannot de- develop an environmental ethics, which is also in accord with the worldview which dominates over our lives. That's why there's such a disjunction for them in our hospitals. The purely mechanical treatment of the human body and the fact that some people believe they have a soul and their human body is not just a mechanical gadget uh, and all of these tensions that we see. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges which the coming to end of this worldview will pose for us. (coughs) Finally, uh, if we take seriously the rejection of the idea of consciousness being not only the beginning in time, but also in principle of the universe, uh, it really shatters all the deepest hopes of human, human beings. First of all, the eschatological hopes, immortality, these all become dreams. And that is why we are the first time in human history, the development of a society in which the vast majority of people did not do not harbor these hopes. Now they're coming back, a lot of people are coming back. Uh, but in Europe, certainly, still that goes on. Great fear brings these hopes back, but it doesn't accord with the worldview. If if we come from time and space, we cannot transcend time and space. There's nothing that ever existed at the omega point which was not at the alpha point. 
I've written very strong against Teilhard de Chardin and those kinds of theologians who uh, believe that at the beginning was matter, at the end there will be spirit, because Christ said I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he just didn't say I'm the Omega. And if we do not have a root in consciousness, which is beyond time, which is atemporal, we'll never return there. And so the deepest aspirations of human beings, which have always been for immortality in the deepest sense, that is, for an experience beyond time and space, based on the idea that we are the only beings always aware that we die. Even if you're a good scientist, we know we're going to die. Not all the films we can borrow from blockbusters can prevent us from thinking of the fact that sooner or later we will die. Nothing, no diversion can prevent us from that. And therefore, the reality of human life which is with the terminus quo of death and what that implies spiritually, that has, of course, been very, very strongly challenged. I believe the time has come, and with this I want to end. Time has come that we must take this challenge very, very seriously to rethink what is consciousness in relation to our life, in in relation to the life in which we live, the world in which we live, in relation to our way of knowing, our sentience, our experience, and to also realize what are the consequences of the negation of the primacy of consciousness. Although it is totally logically absurd to deny the primacy of consciousness, because as soon as we do so, we do it through consciousness. But a lot of people have done it. Many professors on this campus, behavioral psychologists and the like, of course, do not believe there is such thing as consciousness. It's logically absurd, but they do it nevertheless. But to realize what are the consequences of this for us human beings living in such trying and difficult times. I believe that, of course, ultimately, consciousness will have the final say. But it is for us, while we have consciousness in this life, this great, great gift to use it in order to understand what it means to live consciously, to live fully with awareness, to know where we're coming and where we're going. Thank you. sure how to put this question, but I'll try. Uh, one thing that you left out, which seems to me important in the development of the modern psyche or the modern consciousness, is um, Einstein and his theor- theory of relativity, uh, where he demonstrated that there are no such things, in the natural world at least, as absolutes. And it seems to me that has been the impetus of the modern theory of relativism. Now, I think there's valid alternatives to that, but the, the alternatives seem to be absolutes where everything is it, or relatives and where nothing is it. Um, and it seems to me that that is a, a a challenge, not necessarily to religion, because it seems to me... Uh, my faith, Christianity, 
does well in talk about relationships, which seems to me the basis of uh, Einstein's theory of relationships rather than absolutes. But it is a challenge to philosophy because the Greek thought was based a great deal on absolutes. And I know Chris, uh, our culture is based on Greek classical philosophy and Islamic culture is based to some extent on Greek philosophy. Uh, Greek philosophy. And <clears throat> how do you address this question or this problem of absolutes? First of all, to come back to Einstein, Einstein never said everything was absolute. He first of all believed in the old one. And secondly, of course, the theory of relativity is based on the absoluteness of the speed of light, which is now being challenged. So th uh, that, that whole theory of relativity is now being challenged. But we shall see whether the theory of relativity itself is relative or not. But even if we take this theory of relativity to be absolute, that is itself the first absolute. This is what we often do. Now, to come back to this, to this question of absolute and relative, uh, I do not feel I had to deal with here of relativity because much of what had occurred as far as consciousness is, con is concerned had occurred before Einstein came upon the scene. Uh, but uh, the question of absolute and relative, because modern philosophy does not accept any absolutes. It says everything is relative, except the statement that everything is relative, which is absolute. And that's why it's logically absurd. Uh, that, but it says it nevertheless. Uh, in traditional philosophies, uh, not everything is absolute. I don't know why you say that. Uh, only God is absolute. For them in Islam, only God is absolute. And uh, the, the, everything else is the domain of relativity and, and relationality. Well, one definition of absolute is that it is non-related. Uh, yes. In, in traditional philosophy, I believe, if something is absolute, it means it stands by itself. by itself, it is not related right. to anything else. That's right. In Christian theology, God is love, which means that God is related to everything. If you and but if you say uh, God in Islam is absolute, which means that what does it mean? It means that He is the one above all relationality. I think every Christian would also accept that God is absolute. Even Christ is absolute. Christians claim that Christ is absolute. That's the problem we have with, with religious dialogue. That, that as soon as you say God has only one son, that's an absolute statement. No, that's a different, a different word. That's a true statement. It's based on absolutizing a particular uh, concept, a particular category. Anyway, this is not really relevant completely to, to the subject of my discourse. It's a very interesting subject, but uh, the reason I didn't mention Einstein because I didn't really think that that theory of relativity was completely relevant to what I was going to say. Anybody else have any other questions? Yes, sir. You're not supposed to ask any questions. You're supposed to bring the session to an end. <laughs> <laughs> Something about a vacuum. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this interesting remark that you made sort of toward the latter part of the, the, the talk about the, the presence of elements in an alpha that would appear in an omega, the, the union in some way of time. And I wondered what differences you, you might consider or put forward in uh, between, say, an alpha condition and an omega state. I mean, is there something about manifestation or a fullness of self-awareness or self-consciousness in all elements and 
Would you take us a few sentences further in your thoughts that you, you put yes, out That's there? a very profound metaphysical question. Uh, as far as God as the one, the absolute is concerned, there can be no difference. God cannot change from my point of view, or not my point, is irrelevant, from traditional point of view, from the point of philosophical, philosophical perennis, cannot change through transformation. But there is something that happens. And this is very difficult to explain in human terms. And the most difficult of all theological questions is why God created the world. If he is perfect, why did he create the world? And each tradition has given a different answer. Christianity is a mystery. Uh, and uh, some people say, well, God is love, and so he wanted to create the world in which he could give his only son and, and so forth. You know that better, these things better than I do. Uh, Islam has a very interesting answer uh, to this, which has been commented upon by Sufi commentators over the centuries. And the fam- that is the famous saying of the hidden treasure in which God speaks in the first person through the mouth of the Prophet of Islam, in which the Prophet says, I was a hidden treasure, that is, God was a hidden treasure. I wanted to be known, therefore I created the world so that I would be known. That is, you might say, God is not only absolute, but he's also infinite. And being infinite, he must contain all possibilities. Containing all possibilities, he must contain the possibility of his own negation, which is the world. And his coming to know of himself outside of himself, in a kind of objectivization of his own reality in the mirror of his own creation, which is the world. And so there is, from that point of view, a difference. Nothing is added to God certain possibilities in the infinity of divine nature are realized in this way. That's really one th- all that one can say of it. Yes? Do you believe that there are ways to reestablish the knowledge that you speak of, of consciousness in its complete um, uh, aspects, and if so, what are they? And if, if you don't believe there are ways to establish that or restore it in a large sense among humanity... What is the logical consequence? I first of all think it is possible to restore it, but immediately not among the many. That starts from among the few. You first of all throw a pebble in the pond and you have a small circle and larger and larger and larger to a larger people. I do not believe that it's possible to suddenly bring about a transformation of the masses, you might say, especially since the mass media and so forth are all working the other direction. By the fact that we're never alone, we have very little chance to deepen our consciousness. We're always, in a sense, challenged or energized or what we think or amused by something outside of ourselves. You see very few people walking today without something under the ear, listening to something coming from the outside into their mind. So all the forces, in a sense, are working against it. But at the same time, there's no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that has been in the last few decades, a great deal of attention made and paid in those sectors of humanity which had been indifferent to this, in the, what the meaning of consciousness is in the deeper sense, and the knowledge that derives from it, and how to attain that consciousness. A lot of the pseudo-religions and so forth are based on that. They cater to this need. The need is there. There's no doubt about it. But I do not believe it will be realized by, you know, either the pseudo-gurus and so forth, or opening up big shops and having, or a radio station for enhancement of consciousness or things like that. <laughs> it has to start with the smaller groups, and then through, really, education. Uh, not, I don't mean only formal education, but 
education in the larger sense of the term, even through the arts and so forth. Gradually, perhaps, it can be somewhat expanded. But unfortunately, I believe that nothing of this will occur on a vaster scale without some kind of a catastrophe waking us up. There's nothing better to, to be conscious when you're asleep than when some, some animal bites you. You immediately wake up in the, and if you're camping outdoors. We need, we need one of those bites before our hand is bitten off. You know, there's one little bite. And I've always said that's the greatest grace we could receive from heaven is to have a little at least shock to wake up before we have a big shock from which we might not wake up. Yes, sir. There is an experience, religious experience, that's found in all cultures. Um, the Muslims are, call it fana. 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 Um, in the West, sometimes called mystical union or um, born again. In the, in the Midwest, they call it the born again experience. Um, samadhi, and so forth. Could you talk about consciousness during that experience? Uh, first of all, I don't think all of these are necessarily the same, especially born again, because one can regain faith in religion. Kind of born again Christian, born again Buddhist, born again Muslim. But not on that level of fana or samadhi. Now, let's say every Thai who comes back to Buddhism, even if we don't want to mention the Midwest, is going to receive samadhi. Nor every born again Christian in Indiana is going to become a Meister Eckhart. I wish that were the case, but that doesn't happen. Uh, but this, this is definitely true in all religions, and I shall say something about it. Uh, th- let me just start with the word fana, which you mentioned, which means extinction in Arabic, which means extinction of our consciousness of ourselves, not in the negative sense as falling asleep or becoming drunk, but the opening of the consciousness to the divine reality, which is supreme consciousness or supreme reality, where being and uh, knowledge are the same. And uh, there's no use for me to describe to you how this happens because there seems to be something contradictory in it. That is, human beings have the capability of being aware of their own nothingness. Now, if you're nothing, how can we be aware? And so it's really something experiential. That is, But it, what it really is, is that the individual human consciousness dies to its ordinary level of awareness and consciousness. That's the, that's the death part. But participates in the absolute consciousness of God. And what that means for each person is different. But what it means also is that the limits, the human limits, in a sense, are erased at the moment when this experience takes place. That is one, that's why some mystics have daringly spoken of union with God and I am God and I'm swimming in the ocean of God as Meister Eckhart said, or Halad said, I am the truth, and so forth. It's not the individual ego anymore. The ego consciousness has melted away. I was talking about the levels of consciousness. And the consciousness opens up. What you're talking about is the supreme level. There are many intermediate levels. Before you get to Samadhi, or before you get to Fanada, you have to cross many other stages of consciousness. Uh, but the ultimate is the opening of our limited consciousness to the infinite consciousness of the divine. That's what it is. I'll take two more questions. Yes? Um, it was a fascinating talk. I'm really at a loss how to uh, put my question, but uh, implicit, I think there are two points here. Uh, 
your analysis of this rupture between tradition and modernity or modern worldviews and the consequences that it has led to, uh, I'm just wondering that uh, you, you dwelt a lot on the, the scientific side, uh, but are there uh, areas to really ponder upon in, in the tradition as well, which may have, uh, within the traditional discourse itself, uh, especially in the form of its traditionalism or uh, the religious uh, scriptures, uh, and its limitations, which perhaps limitations, quote unquote, which perhaps led the scientific discourse to uh, to dispute that. And uh, I just don't know is there, is there a way to see some reconciliation between the two, rather than seeing them as antagonistic? Uh, although you didn't say it so explicitly, but what, what I'm wondering is that uh, two things. One is uh, how do we look at uh, the limitations of the religious discourse as well, and also if we could uh, find a way not to see them as antagonistic, and then there's some ultimate unity between the two then. Uh, first of all, this is, uh, there are certain events that took place within both the religious and philosophical circles in the West before the scientific revolution, which made the scientific revolution possible. There's no doubt about that. There was only a one-sided story. There were comes from both sides. Secondly, the question of reconciliation. A lot of people have spoken about that. Reconciliation between what and what? That is, if you have an absolute claim to a particular understand the truth, then you cannot accept another claim which also has an absolute claim. During the last few centuries, almost every case has been in the West, religion which has being conciliatory and given up, or science has not given up anything. It's really the dominant power. It is, the, in a sense, the religion of the modern world. I say that well, jokingly. That's why everybody who wants to sell products on television wears a white robe uh, of a doctor instead of a black robe of a priest, obviously. Uh, so uh, it's not that you have two equal forces. Now you give half and you give half. Secondly, on the question of the truth, it is not a question of compromise. It's on the plane of action you can compromise. But the, on the plane of truth, neither religion nor science can compromise. What can be done is for, and many individual scientists have accepted that, but the scientific worldview does not accept that, including the ph- most, most philosophers. Because philosophy in the West since the 18th century, with a few exceptions, has become a handmade of physics since Kant. It is not independent of modern science. So they run along with it, except a few exceptions. Kierkegaard, a few other people. Uh, perhaps Hegel. Uh, the important thing is that in the scientific point of view, the scientific view of nature is absolutized as being the only view of nature. And everything other than that is rejected in total as being false. That is why even deconstructionism, which is taking place in the United States on the ideas of Derrida and Lyotard and people like that, it takes place most in the part of the comparative literature, not in the physics department. I mean, a few people write about that, but it doesn't touch the sciences. It's deconstructing the humanities. And the few who want to deconstruct the sciences, they're thrown out uh, very quickly. So this idea of reconciliation is a very good idea, but provided... Uh, we do not lose our sight of the truth. 
and neither religion or science can do that, but it's possible to reconcile, provided we have an idea of the hierarchy of knowledge. In my book, Knowledge and the Sacred, I've spoken about that quite extensively. But if each side claims for itself the absolute truth, and religion also does not make use of the deepest resources of its teachings and just sticks to the most superficial interpretation, which has in fact no answer to many of the questions posed by modern science, then no reconciliation is possible. I think we're going to get to your second question. Last to you and the lady there. I think because no women ask the question, please. Yes. Um, I'll come to you last. Are there no scientists? Uh, I was under the impression that there are some cosmologists now that are beginning to talk about the underlying reality being consciousness. I attended one of those Templeton right. uh, right. meetings of theologians and scientists, and there were several cosmologists who seemed to be moving in that direction. That you're that right. That's, that's correct, and that's part and parcel of what I said at the very beginning. We're coming to the cusp, to the end of this, what I feel is the curve of the life of this type of scientism and the paradigm that's dominated over the West for several centuries, and that's one of the signs of it. But that has not percolated into our the way we look at the world. Yes, there are a number of psychologists and, and uh, cosmologists and physicists from different sides who speak about these matters, yes, but it has not become part and parcel yet of our worldview. The last question. As I've been listening, uh, yeah. Yes, one issue is that so everybody can hear you. Okay. Um, I hear a lot of resonance in your thinking with the thought of Carl Jung. Uh, Jung, based on his own clinical experience, posited a consciousness that's autonomous. Um, doctrine of synchronicity or his sense of synchronicity is that that consciousness has operational effect that's uh, complementary to, if not uh, co-equal with uh, materialist cause and effect. Um, and... Uh, an article called Answer to Job, he talked about a, a, a God force or a, this uh, higher consciousness that, that comes to a greater awareness of itself through uh, the increase of the consciousness of humans. Uh, he even talked about UFOs in one, in one essay as uh, a psychical, synchronous kind of product of our longing for a company in the universe. Uh, are you... Would you agree that a lot of what you've said today uh, is very much uh, in harmony with the thought of Jung? Not really. And, uh, there and are then, certain things and, which and, I said. And if not, then, yeah, then yes, I'd be I'll interested here. Why not? Yeah. The things which I said, some of them have also been mentioned by Jung, but interpreted in a very different way. Jung, first of all, never accepted a metaphysics which would transcend the psyche. He never spoke about the divine intellect. He psychologized the spiritual realities. For him, there was no distinct uh, division or separation between uh, pneuma and psyche, that is, between the spirit and the soul or the psyche. And he saw everything on the psychological level. Of course, he was right in that the psyche cannot be reduced to the material aspects of the body. That much I agree with him. But where we disagree is, first of all, the difference between the spirit and the psyche Secondly, the source of, for example, symbols, which Jung sees in the unconscious, the common unconscious of a particular ethnic group or society, whereas for people like myself, we believe that's a numinous and transcendent source above the psyche, 
And also Jung was really afraid of, conf- and of coming to the, to face the reality of God. He evaded it. He evaded it as much as he could. And whenever in his life an occasion came for him to meet a very important spiritual authority of various religions, he tried to evade it. Because I think uh, this idea of psychologizing the spiritual, uh, seeing people like that threaten that vision. Uh, The spiritual is not the psychological. And the seat of consciousness is not in the psyche. It is beyond the psyche, but the psyche shares in it, definitely. Thank you very much.